going to pick up the reading starting in verse 24. Go to the end of the chapter. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, for Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here, or to me here this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do what seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see this sin, how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord, the God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, then Israel, then give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and the Ammonites, against Edom and the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines and Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck down the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner was the father of Abner. I'm sorry, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Amen. Let's ask the Lord one more, once more to bless our worship.
Lord, as has been already prayed, we commit this time into your hands. We trust, Lord, that you desire us to understand what you have revealed in your word. And so we pray that you will give us hearts to receive it, wisdom to understand and appropriate it, and a love above all for the Savior, without whom none of this would be possible. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we move back into 1 Samuel, remember that we are following some of the early episodes and the rise in the reign of King Saul. In in chapter 13, the, the last chapter that we were in, God vindicated his word that Saul would in fact be a, a king of curses rather than that temple building king of blessing. And we saw that uh, through Saul faithlessly rebelling against God in his presumptively offering that pre-war sacrifice himself. Rather than waiting for Samuel the prophet to come and give him God's word on how he was to defeat the Philistines. And we had argued that if Saul had passed that test in that moment, if he were truly a man after God's own heart, and if he had pursued God's glory rather than his own, then he would have defeated the Philistines, which would have opened the highways to completing the conquest of the land, which at this point was, though mostly fulfilled, still not fully completed. He would have captured Mount Zion, the city of God's own name, and he would have been privileged to rule and to reign from that great mountaintop. But he failed. And therefore, Samuel came and announced to him that God had cut off his line, that there would be no dynasty of the sons of Saul reigning and ruling in Jerusalem and ushering the people into the presence of God. That was chapter 13. And then we began chapter 14 by taking a look at Jonathan, the man of faith, and noting how sharply his faith-filled obedience contrasted with the heart of his father. As we now prepare for today's text, this is what I want you to have firmly in your mind. That because of Saul's unlawful sacrifice and Samuel's clear and perspicuous condemnation of it, that the life of Saul and his works now stand firmly condemned before the bar of God. It was not a matter of subjective interpretation as to whether or not Saul had transgressed. Samuel had given Saul a very clear and explicit denunciation of his sacrifice. And therefore, as we prepare for today, we are looking at a Saul who now finds himself in the situation that confronts all men in one way or another. And that is this, that they stand condemned before the law of God. Whether it be from the explicit preaching of the law of God into the ears of man or simply from the inward testimony of that law which is written upon his heart, all men find themselves confronted with the condemnation of their hearts and of their lives. And every man responds to that condemnation in one way or another. It is absolutely inescapable. All men know God, and they cannot escape that which is written upon their hearts. And Saul is no exception. And what today's portion of Scripture is going to show us is how the man Saul of Benjamin responds when faced with the explicit revelation of his own unrighteousness before God. And we might expect that after receiving Samuel's condemnation of his actions, that Saul would, at this point, having been sort of cut off, abandon any pretense of loyalty to God. That he would say something like this, well, fine, if he's done with me, then I'm done with him. I'm done feigning this obedience. I'm going to strike out on my own, and I'm not going to worry about trying to deal with this God who has just told me that I am rejected. That's how he might be expected to respond. And yet... That's not what happens. In fact, in some ways, as we're going to see, it's the exact opposite. In this text, Saul actually takes up a new series of spiritual exercises, and seemingly with renewed vigor. And yet, rather than being a sign of spiritual life, the events of this text are going to mark the beginning of one of the saddest and most sobering episodes in Scripture, the descent and spiraling madness of a man who is attempting to establish a righteousness before God apart from God. And so the title of this sermon is this, The Cruel Tyranny of Man's Religion. We're going to witness the disastrous consequences of Saul's refusal to submit to the righteousness that God offers to sinners in the man of heaven. Now, I've organized this text around four different uh, religious actions or activities wherein Saul attempts to clothe himself in a form of external piety, but which upon further examination expose his hatred of God and his perversion of God's law 
for his own desires. We're going to see the following four points. First, a religious oath. Second, a religious cleansing. Third, a religious consultation. And fourthly, a religious vow. Let's look first at a religious oath. We're going to find this in verses 24 to 30. Now recall, when we were going through a confessional study, Paul uh, did a a little uh, sermon or lecture on religious oaths and vows. You may remember from that that an oath is a promise that one human makes to another human in the presence of God. Now the key there being the fact that the oath or the promise goes from one man to another rather than from the man to God. And the scripture presents Saul's oath to us right away here in verse 24 where we read this, Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So that's the oath. Now, in order to understand the significance of the oath, we need to recall what is happening in the immediate context. Remember that Saul offered his sinful sacrifice because the Philistines were closing in around him. He was under a threat, and he got scared. And in response to that transgression, as we said, Samuel denounced him, and he left him. Now, when Samuel condemned Saul, did we read in that text of any repentance on Saul's part? Did he confess his transgressions to Samuel? No, he did not. He heard what Samuel said. He watched God's prophet abandon him right before this crucial battle. And then Saul turned and trudged himself up the hill of Gibeah to sit under his pomegranate tree. In other words, the law brought condemnation to Saul, but he did not repent. And then the text told us that he was left with only 600 men in the face of over 30,000 Philistine soldiers. And so according to the normal course of providence, he and Israel should have been expecting a slaughter. And yet, that wasn't what happened. To their shock and surprise, as they sit on top of the hill looking out into the valley below, the mighty Philistines begin to flee in confusion. And Saul knew this, and the men around him knew this. It was clearly not the hand of Saul that had brought about this unusual turn of events. It was not Saul who had saved them. He was standing on the hill doing nothing. This unexpected event was due, as we know, to God's blessing, the faithful obedience of Jonathan. But at first, Saul and his men don't know that. Now, they eventually find out that Jonathan is no longer in the camp, and they deduce that, well, he must have something to do with this. But even then, Saul doesn't clearly perceive the fullness of what is happening between the Lord and Jonathan. All he sees is that his enemies are fleeing from before him, and that Israel now has an opportunity for a miraculous victory. And Saul should have interpreted this providence as a sign from God that he had sinned, and yet, despite his sin, God was now showing he and Israel mercy. That's how he should have interpreted what he was seeing. But the warping effects of sin on his mind produced in him a second interpretation of this providence. And in order to see how Saul more than likely interpreted what he was seeing, I want you to recall something. Why did Saul still feel the need to offer the sacrifice in the last chapter. When Samuel didn't show up, according to his estimation of when Samuel should have showed up, why did Saul not just abandon the sacrificial ceremony and charge into battle without it? Because in his mind, the way to obtain favor from God was what? Through some sort of religious duty. As he said in that chapter, I need to, quote, soften the face of the deity. And so he did it. And Samuel did condemn him for it, but the condemnation clearly didn't lead Saul to repent of his thinking about God in that way, that God was sort of a a puppet that could be controlled by his rituals. And since he failed to repent of that way of thinking in the last chapter, then as he stands looking down at the Philistines fleeing before him, we have every reason to assume that he is still carrying that frame of mind in terms of his thinking about God with him in this moment. And so now as he stands looking down at these Philistines, he sort of looks back at everything that's just happened previously between he and Samuel and the sacrifice, and he probably thinks to himself, wait a minute, it appears that my sacrifice might have actually worked after all. I offered the sacrifice in order to obtain a miraculous victory in battle against all odds, and now that very thing is unfolding before me. I haven't lifted a finger, and yet all of my enemies are scattering. That old Samuel was wrong, and who is he anyway? I am God's anointed. I am now in charge of this nation. God's uh, special presence is upon me. Perhaps he thought that Samuel was jealous of him and being too hard upon him. And 
After it all, it turns out that God really is pleased with what I have done. And here is the evidence of it. We have fleeing Philistines. And so it's with that principle of performing external religious obedience in exchange for God's favor, now having been firmly uh, confirmed in his mind, that Saul then turns to all of those around him and says to them this, not a one of you will eat or drink until I have my victory and my vengeance. Now what's going on here? Saul forbids his men to have food and water until the Philistines are all extinguished. The Philistines are fleeing, but they're not dead yet. The work is not over. And Saul wants to take no chances of losing this victory. He intends to finish them off. But though he may be confident that it was the merit of his sacrifice that got the Philistines fleeing in the first place, it appears that Saul is not fully confident that that sacrifice will be sufficient to help, for God to help him finish off the enemies. And therefore, Saul needs another way of making sure that God knows how worthy he is to be rewarded. Some way of showing the Almighty that he will do, Saul will do whatever it takes to earn his favor. And so Saul turns to the classic ploy that idolatrously religious men use to establish their righteousness before God. It is known as asceticism, harsh self-denial. Asceticism is found in in virtually every religion invented by man in some form or another. And the mentality behind it runs something like this. If I inflict enough unnatural punishment on my mind and my body, I will either atone for my sins or I will prove to the deity how zealous I am and he will reward me for my zeal. The Apostle Paul very clearly condemns asceticism as a doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We read there, quote, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see what the ascetics were saying in Paul's day? If we deny ourselves the the sexual expression that is to take place in marriage, and if we deny ourselves the food that pleases the senses, then we will earn acceptance before God. That is asceticism. And Paul says that is demonic. Now, why would demons desire for men to believe that lie? Because the men who buy into that way of thinking do so because they believe that they are earning something from God himself. And the demons know they're not ignorant. They know that there is only one righteousness appointed from heaven for men by which they may be saved. And so those whose consciences are seared into this way of thinking are seared into that which will turn them away from the salvation that God offers and into the torments of demons for all of eternity. Asceticism is a hallmark of man's religions. And therefore, this ascetic impulse in Saul is evidence that he is working out the religion of man in his heart and not God's gospel of grace. Now, in this text, Saul's asceticism takes the form of an oath. And normally when you make an oath, the oath ends up binding you to do something, does it not? You are the one who has to do something to fulfill the oath, but not here. Saul makes an oath, and the result is that the people have to do something. They have to pursue the enemies on an empty stomach. They must refrain from any and all nourishment. It is the Israelites who must fulfill the terms of the oath. That's why the text refers to it as Saul binding or laying an oath on the people. They didn't voluntarily do this themselves. It is forced upon them. Now, obviously, this is an irrational thing to do. If you are going to pursue an enemy for long distances on foot and have the strength to fight them once you catch up, then your body's going to need sustenance. That's humanity 101. We all know that. It will need food, and your body will need water. Otherwise, you're either not going to catch them because you're going to tire out, or if you do catch them, you're not going to have any strength left for the fight because your body is going to be malnourished. It is blatantly obvious that there is no military advantage to be obtained by this policy. So why do it? The only reason he would do it is because he is convinced that God will see the extreme links that he is willing to go to in order to render obedience, that God's going to be pleased with it, and that God will, of course, reward him for his courageous self-denial. That is the first act of religious 
piety that we see Saul performing here, an oath of asceticism. Now I want you to notice the consequences of Saul's religion. He thinks that the consequence is going to be divine favor. But we see the real outcome begin to unfold in verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now here you have men who have been pursuing the Philistines for hours on foot, and they are human beings. They have biological needs that God has created within them. And here they see food sitting right on the ground in front of them. And it's not just any food. It's not just the bare minimum, moldy bread or something like that. It's honey. It is a pleasant and it is an enticing food. It's the very food that God had marked out as a reason why the land of Israel was going to be a blessing to the Israelites. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they're looking at a food that is both delicious a precious form of sustenance, and a sign of God's blessing, all rolled into one. And everything in their natural, God-given faculties is screaming out, take and eat, it is good. And yet, for fear of a will-worshipping man's folly, they must deny themselves what is rightfully theirs from God's perspective and suffer needlessly under the pangs of hunger and exhaustion, knowing that there is no end or relief in sight. The cruelty of it. I, I include myself in this category. I imagine most of us in here can't, can't really say we know what it's like to be hungry. The, if we did, I think we would understand how much these men were suffering because of Saul. And righteous Jonathan even confirms this negative assessment of Saul's oath in verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his right hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats this day. The people were faint. They were suffering. Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had freely eaten today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat amongst the Philistines has not been great. See, Jonathan was exhausted. He was weary from his pursuit in battle. His eyes had begun to grow dim and blurry from lack of vitamins and nutrients. I'm sure some of you have experienced, I've experienced this myself when I am dehydrated or hungry and still working the eyes. They just, they don't quite see right. It's almost like you can kind of see, but there's this weird blackness that starts to overtake your eyes at the same time. It's a very strange thing, and the only thing that fixes it is to get nutrients inside of your body. And so, after tasting of the goodness of God's provision and having his own strength restored, he then learns that God has forbidden this good blessing, I'm sorry, that Saul has forbidden this good blessing to the whole army. So you can imagine his rage and his indignation as he sees his fellow soldiers languishing when they should have been rejoicing in the great salvation that God had provided to them. And the language that Jonathan uses here is very intentional. He says that Saul has troubled the land. That language comes to us straight out of Joshua chapter 7. When Achan stole treasure from Jericho and Joshua found him and said to him, Son, tell me what you have done. And then after learning that he had stolen all of that treasure, Joshua said to Achan, Why have you troubled Israel? The Lord brings trouble on you this day. And they stoned and burned his family alive. Saul, in other words, is being likened to Achan in the effect that his sin is having upon Israel. That is the first duty that Saul performs in his adherence to man's religion. It is a religious oath, and it is also the longest of the duties. The second one is called, I'm calling, a religious cleansing, and we see it in verses 31 to 35. They, the Israelites, struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Now follow the progression of events here. The Israelites take a break from the pursuit. Jonathan eats the honey. The Israelites resume the pursuit. And then at some point during the day, they catch the Philistines and begin striking many of them down. Now we the readers are fully aware of Jonathan's assessment of Saul's oath, right? It troubled the land. 
And because we got Jonathan's assessment of it, we are already, even if we're not aware of it, interpreting Saul's actions in a negative light. But remember, Saul did not hear Jonathan's assessment of his actions. So now, put yourself back in Saul's shoes. You offered the sacrifice back in chapter 13, and God appeared to respond by scattering the Philistines miraculously. You performed a religious duty, God rewarded. So you say, let's do it again. And you bind the people with an oath not to eat until you had caught the Philistines and avenged yourself on them. And lo and behold, what happened? You caught them. You scattered them. The oath worked. So to Saul's eyes, he performs rituals. God responds with victories. And so all is well. But Saul soon discovers a new problem. The people are eating the blood of animals. Now we thought that the people were supposed to be abstaining, right? Well, clearly what's happened here is that the evening has come. Remember in Saul's oath, he bound the people saying, you shall not eat until the evening. Well, we sort of flash forward in time a little bit. It's evening. Uh, the, the people now have uh, animals sitting in front of them. After the skirmish, the people are starved, and they seemingly don't wait for Saul's formal confirmation that the oath has been fulfilled. They assess that it is so, and then they pounce like beasts on the Philistine animals. Now, I want you to picture this for a moment. Picture a, a large group of sweaty, bloody, dirty and disheveled men grabbing living animals as they screech and tearing them apart with their knives and their fingers, ripping out raw meat, shoving it between their teeth and having uh, with it full of in their mouths the blood squirting down upon their chins. It's disgusting. It's degrading. And it is completely contrary to the law of God. God had said in Deuteronomy 12, 23, only be sure not to eat of the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Clear commandment. And yet these men are throwing it aside in their desperation for food. So if Saul were in his right mind, he would look at the spectacle of grown men acting like beasts around him and he would realize, I caused that. I drove them to this point. And it would lead him to render that repentance that we already noted he has so far failed to give, going back to chapter 13. It would cause him to open his eyes and see what his self-made religious piety is doing to those around him and how it is causing them to stumble into sin. Now would be the time to apologize for the godless burden that he had bound upon them. But no, we get no repentance here either. No apologies to God or to man. No sober self-assessment and contrition for his actions. Instead, Saul is worried that their ceremonial sin, which he will not see, that he has caused, is going to ruin this good system of exchange that he's got going with God, in which he works and God pays. And so Saul has a solution to the problem. We're going to bypass repentance once again, and we're going to go straight for the sacrifice. So we read, Saul said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered him there. Now notice that. Saul says to them, You have dealt treacherously. Now that's quite an audacious accusation to make against men that you drove to starvation like animals at the point of a whip. And notice something else important here. If you were to ask the question, what did God prescribe for Israel to do in the event that they became unclean through the eating of blood? What would the answer be? Offer a sacrifice, right? Is that not what God prescribed in his law? And here the people have become defiled by eating blood. And so what does Saul prescribe for them? A sacrifice. And he even goes out of his way to build an altar for them so that they can do just that. And so someone might say, well, this is a good thing. Saul was doing exactly what God prescribed in this situation. But think for a moment. Saul's goal is to procure favor through his actions. Earlier, when he wanted to chase the Philistines on foot, he was encountering a situation where he felt that he needed divine favor, but that he could not simply uh, flip to a text in God's law and read out what to do in order to obtain that favor. There was no passage in the law about uh, what to do when you are chasing your enemies on foot to make sure that God will defeat them for you. And so what did Saul do in the absence of such a command? Made one up. I know how to get God's favor. We just won't eat or drink. Surely that will get God's attention. That's what Saul does when there is no prescribed act of obedience. It just so happens that now he is confronted with a situation 
that was directly addressed in God's law, the eating of blood. So now Saul doesn't have to make up any kind of religious duty in order to procure God's favor. He can just carry out the one that God prescribed, the sacrifice. Now that makes it easy for Saul to pick out which of the, or what form his external obedience is going to take in this situation. But it does not mean that just because he got the form right that his heart behind it was being motivated by godly impulses. In fact, we're going to see in the next chapter that Saul is clearly rebuked for his external observance of sacrifices at the expense of the meaning of those sacrifices. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. It seems that they did not neglect most or all of the external obediences prescribed in the law. That's not what Jesus rebukes them for. It was, of course, the internal matters of the law that they had neglected. They carried out all of the external laws prescribed, but because they clung to the religion of man, whenever they encountered a situation where they didn't think there was a simplistic, God prescribes this in this situation, what they did? They made one up. The washing of cups and plates, the measuring of distances walked upon the Sabbath. And we would not look at the fact that the Pharisees brought the right animals at the right times in the year and think, well, they're clearly not self-righteous. They're doing exactly what God said to do. And the fact that they added to God's law shows us that they viewed him as a puppet to control, even in the duties that God did prescribe. And it's no different with Saul. He's already shown us through his oath that when he encounters a situation where he does not think that he can pull a simplistic lever to control God. He will simply make something up. And by doing so, he has caused the people to sin, and he has taught them through his actions that religion is nothing more than a matter of hypocrisy. He strains at ritual purity. You've sinned against the Lord. Let's offer a sacrifice. But he neglects compassion and justice and giving to the men what is due to them. And as a result, they are famished weary and guilty of sin before God. And Saul's only concern is that what they have done will cause God to take away his victory and his glory. So he throws a formal religious duty before them without dealing with his own heart and the sins he had committed against God and against them. That's the second religious duty we see Saul performing, a formal cleansing. The third one is a religious consultation. It comes to us in verses 36 and 37. Saul offers his cleansing sacrifices. And then the next two verses sort of give us the impression that Saul simply assumes that the sacrifices that he just offered and had the people offer have now won him continued favor in his quest. Verse 35, if you look at the end of verse 35, it says, it ends with Saul building the altar, presumably for the sacrifices. And then immediately in the next words in verse 36, Saul says, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and not leave a man of them. So do you see that? He offers a sacrifice, and then immediately, it's all right, everybody, get up, let's keep going. There is no concern to confirm that the Lord is pleased and has accepted the offerings that were just given. The narrator, in other words, intends us to see Saul as presumptive and hasty. And that's actually confirmed for us at the end of verse 36, because the priest has to intervene. The priest said, let us draw near to God here. See, the, you see, the priest is having to slow him down a little bit. And Saul does listen to him. Saul could have said no. He could have just continued on and pressed everyone forward. But instead, the text says, Saul does inquire of the Lord. So then, how should we interpret Saul's inquiry? Again, the fact that it was not his first instinct to go to God and that he had to be called out publicly in order to slow down and actually consider taking the time to do it, that in and of itself should tell us something. But continuing on the theme of Saul sort of abounding in religious duties, it would seem that when Saul hears the priest propose that they all inquire of the Lord, that what went through Saul's mind was not, you know, he's right. I ought to humbly petition the Lord and make sure that everything is right in my soul and seek his will for this situation. Now, in Saul's mind, this is probably nothing more than extra insurance for obtaining God's favor. He thought he was good to go right after the sacrifices. He was moving on, but hey, what's one more act of piety just to make sure? So Saul inquired, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Now in light of what we've been analyzing about Saul's state of mind, imagine the shock that this must have come at to him. He's been charging ahead 
with full confidence that he has obtained God's favor. He offered a sacrifice, and God sent 33,000 Philistines fleeing. He bound the soldiers with an oath and drove them like madmen to prove how zealous he was, and then they caught the Philistines and slaughtered many of them, despite the soldiers being weak and tired. And now he's offered a sacrifice to cleanse the men of their blood guilt. Everything is working. God is clearly pleased. And Saul is so confident in the success of his religion that he's now actually having to be restrained by the priests from being too hasty as they make one last attempt to finish off the Philistines for good. And so Saul calls out to God for good measure to confirm what he already knows, that God is with him and is prospering him. And then... With everyone gathered around, with the whole uh, army that was left, staring, watching, waiting intently to see God's response, the whole party is cloaked in deafening silence as nothing comes back from the Almighty. So here we go again. Saul has been twisting and perverting reality, cloaking himself in deception, trying to convince himself that God really is pleased with him and blessing his obedience. And now once again, because of God's actions, a a sunny beam of reality is starting to penetrate into his sinful fantasy world, exposing his deeds of darkness and proclaiming, God is not pleased. God didn't answer him. Saul has had multiple indications now that all is not well. Samuel explicitly told him that God rejected his line and did not accept his sacrifice. The desperate condition of his soldiers and their willingness to act like beasts was a blaring signal that his deeds were wicked. He's had all the evidence in the world, all the chances that a man could possibly need to repent. And now God gives him the clearest sign so far that he's not pleased. He's silent before Saul. Surely now we'll get that obedience. Surely now we'll get that repentance. Now we're going to get that realization that his attempts to control God are misguided. That ought to be his response to the silence with which he was met. But instead, we get the fourth of his religious exploits, a religious vow. Verses 38 to 46. Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel... Though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Now, you recall that the first of Saul's religious acts in this text was an oath. No one could eat or drink until they captured the Philistines. But here we have something slightly different. Here we have a vow. And remember what distinguishes an oath from a vow is that a vow is something that one promises directly to the Lord. The oath was something that he bound between he and the people in the presence of God. But here we have Saul vowing something directly to the Lord. Now, the way he phrases his vow is such that he is speaking out loud to everyone around him. But this is not an oath that he is making with the people. He is making a promise to God. Lord, I will put to death anyone who is guilty of a sin that has displeased you. And he even swears by Yahweh's own name. In the oath that he made earlier, he didn't even invoke God's name. But here he ratchets it up a notch by bringing the name Yahweh to bear upon this oath. In other words, he is absolutely convinced that God is on his side. And here we even see his asceticism begin to creep in once more. Because he says, Even if it's in Jonathan my son, I will kill him. In other words, I am willing to undergo the most painful and harsh emotional experience necessary in order to prove myself to the Lord. I will put a knife to my own son's neck and I'll live with the pain of it forever. And he demands that if anyone knows of the guilty party, that they bring him forward. But no one answers him. Now, at that moment, what ought Saul to do, besides crying out in repentance to the Lord? We ought to be looking at himself. He is the troubler of the land. He has disobeyed the commission that God gave him in chapter 10. He has abused God's people. He is using the Lord like a puppet. But the deceitfulness of his heart is determined to establish his own righteousness and acceptance before God, and therefore it will look for every possible reason to explain the evidences of God's displeasure except the one thing that would require his sinful heart to relinquish its own delusions of merit and glory. And so once again, Saul bypasses true repentance and opts to solve the problem, the problem of God's silence, with the only thing that he knows, another act of faux piety. 
So he makes a vow. I'll kill anyone it takes to show that I am worthy of God's acceptance. So the people divide into groups. Jonathan and Saul are on one side representing the leadership. Ordinary people are in a second group, and they cast the Urim and the Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul are taken. So they cast the lots again. Jonathan is now taken. Now at this point, we need to stop and think. Scripture says that man casts the lot, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord caused that lot to fall upon John. And the purpose, in theory, of casting the lots here is to discover what? Who is the guilty man? And God causes the lot to fall on Jonathan. So one of the questions that commentators have asked of this text for a long time is, well, from God's perspective then, was Jonathan guilty? I think the answer is yes and no, depending on what perspective you're taking it from. There's a little bit of sovereign irony here that the writer wants you to see. Saul asks the Lord to expose the guilty one. Now, according to the vow that Saul had laid upon the people at the beginning, Jonathan is technically guilty, right? He ate the honey, just like Daniel was technically guilty of violating the king's decree that he not worship Yahweh. So in one sense, God gives Saul exactly what he asked for. He answers him. He exposes Jonathan. But remember, God just refused to answer Saul a moment ago, didn't he? So why answer him now? Why make the lot go in the direction that Saul wants it to go? Because God is giving Saul one last opportunity to see the madness of his ways. The moment that that lot fell upon Jonathan and Jonathan confessed to eating the honey, Saul had one more opportunity to sit back and evaluate the oath that he had laid upon the people and to see that it was unjust, to recognize the godly character of his son and to think to himself, wait a minute, am I really to believe that the reason that God refused to answer me is because he's displeased with my righteous son Jonathan, the one who valiantly attacked God's enemies while I sat musing under a tree? But if he recognized that that was absurd, if he recognized that something was very wrong, then he would be forced to realize that the root problem was his own heart and his own religious system. And all the duties that he'd been so zealously performing were not actually securing God's favor. And that was just too much for his proud heart to stomach. And so he says, God, do so to me, and more also, you will die, Jonathan. So... Those are the four rituals of Saul's religion in this text. An oath, a cleansing, sacrifice, a consultation, and a vow. But fundamentally, they are simply expressions of the basic religious principle that governs the hearts of all natural men. And it is this, that my faithfulness to my own standards of righteousness will establish my goodness and my glory. That is man's religion. But now I want you to want us to move beyond simply observing the specific ways that Saul works out man's religion, the four acts of piety that he offered in this text. And now let's take a moment and consider the consequences that all of this is bringing. In this text, Saul's religion reaps consequences in four areas. The self, the godly, the family, and the society. I want to look at the specific consequences that are found in each of those categories that are actually in this text, but then recognizing that this principle is universal, I want to draw out some applications for how man's religion still reaps consequences in all four of those areas today. So let's look first at the harm in this text that man's religion does to the self. And as we'll see in just a moment, Saul's actions in the text very clearly do cause others to suffer. But we may not and must not miss the fact that before his religion reaches out to others, it is first destroying himself. Now, it's only going to get worse from here as we move through 1 Samuel and we begin to explore some of the demonic aspects that are wrapped up in all of this. But just consider what this insistence on refusing to repent and submit to God is doing to Saul's own heart and mind. First, Saul experiences the judgments of God. Even after his unlawful sacrifice, the Lord gave Israel one last chance to defeat the Philistines through Jonathan's faithful obedience. The Philistines were on the run, and Saul should have humbly taken a back seat when he realized what was going on and allowed Jonathan to lead the charge and to finish them off. Jonathan had earned as much. 
It should have been his victory in the Lord. But Saul wanted the glory for himself. And so he charges in to prove his own merit before the Lord in pursuing the Philistines. And though they did in this text catch them and slay many of them, because of Saul's sinfulness, God didn't respond to his last inquiry. The Philistines are cornered. They're in their camp. They've got nowhere else to go. They're tired. They've been on the run. The Israelites are regrouping. Saul asked the Lord, shall we go down and finish them off once and for all? But because of his sin, the Lord didn't answer. And because the Lord didn't answer, because Saul had to bear that consequence, what happened? The pursuit halted, and the Philistines escaped. And now notice what the text says. Jump down to verse 52 real quick. This is an ominous and sad observation when you see what it means in the context of Saul's life. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. That's not just a passing historical footnote. Saul has now had several chances to wipe the Philistines clean once and for all, but because of his sin, they escape. And for the rest of his life, they are a thorn in his side and a constant reminder of what he failed to achieve. And ultimately, they were God's chosen instrument to bring about his death. If he had obeyed God at any point in the last two chapters, there would have been no Philistines left to slay he and his son Jonathan on the top of Mount Gilboa. Saul lost his life literally, physically and spiritually, because of the consequences of his allegiance to man's religion. That's the first way that we see Saul's religion bringing harm to himself. The second is seen in the fact that his religion is making him hard toward those around him. He's willing to treat his soldiers like beasts. Now, many of these men, remember, in the previous chapter, when the Israelites saw that the Philistines were closing in around them, what did we read? Many of them fled. They abandoned him. And the text had to tell us he'd only, he only had 600 men left. Many of the men that he's driving like beasts are among those 600 who stayed with him. It is natural to have compassion and sympathy on those who show themselves loyal to you in your greatest time of need. But in his desperation to prove himself to God and win his glory, he is becoming hardened and callous. His actions in this text are how animals relate to one another. It's not how image bearers of God Almighty were created to love one another. Self-righteousness fundamentally hardens us to our fellow man. And part of why it hardens us is that if a person is attempting to establish a righteousness before God... That effort, that impossible task, strains and stresses a man with a crushing weight and burden upon his soul. He has set before him mission impossible. He has determined to win God's approval, but there's no way to be sure that you've actually done it. And so every time you feel that you have failed, you have to start making it up. You have to start cleansing yourself. And so you set out to perform more duties, more, reap them up. But you, even then, you can't be sure that you perform the duties that you're doing to try and make up for the past actions. You can't be sure that you're doing these duties well enough either. And because your standing before God is not firmed, fixed, and settled in the heavens, then you're always looking for a sign that things are all right, that God really does accept you. And so every providence becomes an opportunity for navel-gazing and obsessing over yourself. Did, th did this happen to me because I did this or I did that? Or do I need to do something to make myself right with God and to fix things? And even be then, then you can never be sure that you've interpreted providence correctly. There's always doubt. There's always worry. Have you done enough to make up? And have you done enough to make sure that God really will accept you on that final day? Men who are trapped in that cycle become irritated. They become paranoid. They become exhausted, and therefore they have no patience for their fellow men. How could they? There is no peace in the soul there. And that's exactly what we see from Saul. By the end of this whole thing, he is running around like a maniac, paranoid that someone has messed up his attempts to please God, and he's willing to kill anybody it takes to eliminate the problem. Does that strike you as someone at peace? Of course not. But that's what man's religion does. Why do you think that we have all this talk in our day of people needing time for self-care, suffering from mental health issues. It's because men have eternity written upon their hearts. They know that they have a righteousness and that it must be evaluated in the light of eternity. But they can't find a way to secure it. 
So they're always stressed because that feeling, that feeling of what they know is coming will never escape them. It won't go away. And so young people, I say to you, learn at an early age to take your anxieties to the Lord. Take them to the Lord. Do not be brainwashed by your peers into thinking that all you need to do to get rid of those anxious feelings that you have is just to dump all the toxic people in your life. Or that if you accept their philosophies about social justice or something like that, that it will make you a righteous person. Then, then you'll feel good about yourself. And when you feel good about yourself, then you won't have to worry about anxiety and stress. No, you, that won't be the case. You'll be just as unsettled and anxious as ever. I know many people who spend tons of time posting to others about how good and righteous they are, signaling themselves, their virtue is what we call it now, right? Virtue signaling. And yet, when I get to know them behind the scenes, they're just as anxious as they've ever been. There is no peace in the soul there. Man's religion creates anxiety. It destroys the self and it robs you of peace that God has created you for. There's only one thing that will actually wipe away an anxious soul. And we'll get to it in just a moment. But that's what I want you to see. The religion of self destroys Saul's own soul and it does the same to all who practice it. The second area that man's religion reaps consequences in is amongst the godly. Who in this text is the clearest example of a godly person? Obviously, it's Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who attacked the Philistine garrison in response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. He submitted himself to the will of God, believing that God was able to give victory and magnify his own name. So can you imagine the joy that was in godly Jonathan's heart as he descends down that rocky crag and begins to pursue the Philistines when it was just him and his armor bearer in the face of countless men. And he begins to go and pursue them. And now the rest of the Israelite forces start to join up and rally around him. And together they drive back the enemy. How much joy in the Lord do you think Jonathan would have been feeling at that moment? Almost boundless. As he and his servant boy joined back up with Saul's main army, do you not think that Jonathan was just beaming, bursting, ready to proclaim the sufficiency of Yahweh's help to all those around him and to point his fellow soldiers to the Almighty? Of course he was. But after he gets a little taste of that honey to restore his strength, the men inform him that his father has begun to carry out the dictates of man's religion. He has taken or made an oath that is cruel and it's contrary to the loving kindness that Jonathan knows is in his God. So rather than rejoicing in the Lord's victory, Jonathan's soul is downcast. And he says, now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Do you see what happened to him? He was robbed of joy. His godly heart weighed down by vexation and frustration. And brethren, that is the oppressive odor that man's religion always brings into the midst of the godly. When this kind of thinking and living begins to take root in the heart of a man or someone from the outside comes in that is possessed with this principle into a Christian assembly, it begins to sour everything. It permeates the atmosphere. When those who profess to worship God but secretly want to establish their own righteousness sneak, as it were, their way into an assembly, their religion will begin to work itself out. Their actions may bear some surface-level resemblance to godly piety, but when you look further, when you really start to look at them, things seem subtly strange and off-putting. They're always doing. They're always working. They're always talking about their latest acts of zeal and piety, but something just seems a little bit off about it. And eventually, you notice they become tiresome for you to be around. You start to wonder if they really do have any peace in their soul. And if they stay long enough, they become a wearisome burden that begins to cast a shadow over the entire assembly that everybody can just sort of feel. And why is that? It's because a Christian, a true Christian... And an assembly made up of true Christians are those whose hearts have been changed to have peace with God, to no longer feel that they are under this oppressive burden of always re-upping and reproving their standing before God to themselves and to others. And when those kind of people, real Christians, are around those who may do many of the same things on the surface, but who are not operating on the same inner principle and from the same inner peace, we can tell. It's wearisome. And as a Christian, I, I imagine... Very many, if not all of you Christians in this room have experienced this. As you get closer and closer to a practitioner of man's religion, you begin to feel sort of that downward depressing tug on your own soul, just like Jonathan did. 
And so, are you such a person? Do you weary the saints with your constant work that lacks all of the semblance of inner peace and stability? Do not fool yourself any longer. God is not fooled. He wasn't fooled by Saul. Saul tried everything in his power (coughs) to convince himself that, that God really did accept all that he was doing, all of his activities, and yet the Lord saw through every bit of it. The Almighty is omniscient. And you won't get away with it any more than he did. And in most cases, we're not going to have to wait till eternity for the inward state of your heart to be exposed. We've experienced people like this before. It almost always comes out. The burden becomes too much. The inner facade breaks down and the person snaps. And it's almost always ugly and painful for everybody involved when it does. That is certainly going to be the case for Saul and those around him in the coming chapters. Man's religion burdens the saints. The third area where man's religion wreaks havoc is in the family. And we see that here in this text. We just pointed to Jonathan as an example of a godly person and the effect that man's religion was having upon the godly. But Jonathan isn't just functioning as a saint of the Most High in this text. He is, but it's more than that. He's also functioning as a son. It's not merely that Jonathan's king's religious hypocrisy is crushing his spirit. It is his own father. And and the climactic tragedy of Saul's religion is that he, a father, looks down upon a son who has done nothing but fundamentally serve him, the king, and the Lord, and declares in front of the whole nation that he will kill him in his innocence. And that familial element adds to the wickedness of the burden that Saul is laying upon Jonathan. It's not just crushing him as a saint, it's crushing him as a child. Remember, Jonathan would have been the very first of Saul's sons to sit on the throne of Jerusalem after his father's death. He was next in line to be the king of God's people, the God whom he loved. He was going to be their people. He was going to bring the people into the presence of the Lord and mediate God's righteous rule to them. Imagine how much he had been looking forward to that as he would travel through the wilderness or go hunting or spend time talking to his brethren about it. He was next in line, but his father's wickedness has robbed him of the throne that would have been rightfully his. The sins of his father may not be imputed to his eternal account, but the sins of his father do have ramifications for him nonetheless. And that principle extends far beyond this historical situation. God has created families, and he has established a supernatural and a wonderful bond between parents and children. It goes far beyond, and I know you all know this, but it's good to be reminded. The bond between parents and children goes far beyond the passing on of biological features. The parent-child relationship, just like the husband-wife relationship, is spiritual in nature. And one of the features that God has created within that relationship is that children look to their parents for guidance and instruction in the things that are written upon their heart as image bearers. Children know that there is a God and something within them cannot escape the need to worship and to orient their lives in such a way that they conform to a standard of uprightness. God has created that need within them. And the parents are God's chosen instruments of cultivating and nourishing those objective realities that are in their children toward its intended end, toward God Almighty. But in order for that process of training and instructing children to flourish and to achieve those intended goals, the parents who do the nurturing must be genuinely walking in the ways in which they are attempting to instruct their children. Children are tender and they are sensitive and they are very perceptive and they can quickly discern when the external nurture and instruction of their parents is something that does not proceed from a genuine appropriation of those principles in the hearts of their parents. In other words, children are expert detectors of the religion of man. Experts. Before they can vocalize it, or understand it, or, or articulate the systematic and theological and moral categories for analyzing it. They can simply perceive in their soul when their parents are hypocrites who command obedience and formal acts of piety in and out of the home, but who have no love for the God to whom the obedience is allegedly being rendered. And brethren, I'm going to tell you that some, and I know some of you have seen this yourself, some of the most hardened, bitter, and hopelessly angry adults that I have ever met are those who grew up in a home that was characterized by man's religion and the hypocrisy that consumed them for the first 18 to 20 years of their life. I got a very recent look at that. I know many adults who grew up in a home 
that was characterized by some form of physical abuse or perhaps alcoholic abuse. And many of those children grew up and found the grace of God and praise the Lord for that. I only know a few adults who have grown up in this kind of environment with a man like Saul as a parent who did not become hardened into vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Man's religion destroys families. And so men, we must fight that poison with everything in us. The very lives of our children really may depend upon it. Finally, man's religion wreaks havoc in society. Saul's religion causes him not only to be a cruel tyrant to himself and to the godly and to his family, but also to the society around him. We've already looked at what the Israelites have had to go through in this text because of him, how his adherence to man's religion has resulted in them being driven like wild beasts to the point of starvation. But that's not the only consequence that Saul's religion had on the society as a whole. It forced the people fundamentally to where they were so desperate for nourishment that they sinned against God by devouring the blood in their food. A large portion of Israel pressed into sin because of the outworking of man's religion. In other words, Saul, to take the words of the Lord Jesus, caused these little ones to stumble. But there's even more. Because of Saul's religion, the Lord refused, as we said, to give a word to Saul. But Saul was not the only one who suffered the consequences of that. The people were also deprived of God's guidance and revelation. Man's religion put the entire society in a position where the word of God was clouded and even muted as a judgment upon their leader. And as a result, Israel was robbed of the national glory of subduing their enemies in the name of God. They would have also gloried in defeating the Philistines and raising the banner that Yahweh is mighty to save. But they did not get that opportunity because of Saul's sin. And finally, Saul's religion put the Israelites in a position where the people were forced to carry out an act of insurrection against their king in order to stem the deadly consequences of Saul's religion. When Saul said that he was going to kill Jonathan, as sort of the, the culminating demonstration of his zeal for God, the people had to step in and say, enough of this madness. As Yahweh lives, not one hair of his will fall to the ground. Now this is the king that they are rebuking. They're having to literally rebel against their king because of the insanity that his self-righteous zealotry has produced in him. Now what they did was good and just in saving Jonathan, but it should not have been necessary. Woe to leaders who in a commitment to anti-Christ religious ideals force their people to rise up against them to stem the tide of their demonic ambitions. It's happened many times. When man's religion is allowed to rule the day in a society's leaders, a large portion of the society will suffer as a result. We saw the effects of this in our own society in the 20th century. I'm going to cut out some of my notes here for time's sake and just summarize. As most of you are aware, this nation had some sort of Christian, strong Christian influence for a long time. But especially in the early to mid-1900s, we had a couple of generations who on a large scale, of course there were saints in every generation, but who on a large scale in this country grew up as children, seeing the rhythms and rhymes and the duties of Christianity, hearing the name of Christ, being used to going to church, tipping their hat toward the Lord, quote-unquote, doing good deeds. And they got used to that being true religion. And so when they became parents and they had children, because they were not possessed inwardly, of the Spirit of God and a true love for the Lord Jesus, they continued those things that they had learned in their childhood on the surface with them in their homes. But because they didn't really have the love of the Lord in their hearts, what their children got to see was a lot of commanding of do this and don't do that, but mommy and daddy arguing and divorce rates skyrocketing, families torn in two, daddy hitting the bottle while also telling them that they need to go to church. And so what happened? In the late 80s and early 90s, those children who grew up stifled in those homes began to produce culture. And that's when we had the, the anger generation. It was all in the music. It was in the movies. It was in the hallways of the public schools. Angry children rebelling against what they thought was Christianity, against the external forms that their parents had put in front of them. And so they threw off any semblance of formal religion. And the floodgates have opened, have they not? Every form of depravity under the sun is now loved and celebrated by our society 
And the irony is, the people who threw off religion in order to do this haven't escaped religion. All they've done is taken man's religion and worked it out in a different sphere. They don't work out man's religion under the banner of the name Christian anymore. They simply uh, see how fast they can affirm the perversions of God's law in their fellow men to show that they are virtuous and good and holy and right. And anyone who speaks against the virtues that they have established is condemned with a religious zeal that rivals the inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church. You see, man's religion destroys societies, and it will destroy ours as well. But there's a better way, and it's the one given to us by God himself. In contrast to the religion of man, which destroys the soul, destroys the family, destroys the society, God has said that you don't have to work to earn your standing before me. You can't, and I won't accept it either. Instead, I'm going to offer you the son of my right hand. He's going to be perfect, or you're not. He's not going to accept an ounce of your work intruding upon his. He will obey. He will suffer the penalty of your sins. He will ascend on high. He will subdue his enemies, and all those who repent and turn to him will find peace and rest for their souls. That's God's religion. That young people, that Christians, is what you need. It's the man of heaven and his righteousness. If you are still in rebellion against God, if you experience the inner anxieties and turmoils of your own sin and that knowledge of eternity that you can't escape, and you have not yet repented and come to this precious Savior, then in the words of Mr. Bunyan, I say, come and welcome to the man of God's right hand. Come and welcome to the one that Saul hated. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He is yours for the having. Let's pray.